White Rocket Entertainment. White Rocket Entertainment, podcast number 445. From the glamour capitals of Europe comes the exciting drama of the men and the women who live the passionate adventure of Grand Prix racing. James Garner, Eva Marie Saint, Eve Montan, Brian Bedford and Jessica Walter, dramatic new stars Antonio Sabato and Francoise Hardy, Toshiro Mifune, and the world's champion Formula One drivers. Now, Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, director John Frankenheimer, and Cinerama take you out of the grandstand and hurl you into the most exciting experience of your life. Welcome to Open Wheel, the White Rocket Entertainment Formula One and IndyCar podcast. Brought to you, as always, by White Rocket Entertainment and our great friends via Patreon.com. I'm Van Allen Plexico, and I am joined, as always, on this show by my co-host, Alan J. Porter. Welcome back aboard, Alan. Thank you, Van. It's good to get revved up and talk racing again. It's been a while. It's been a while. Yeah, our, this is a... This is a semi-regular, verging on almost non-existent lately show because you and I have been doing the Bond, the James Bond monthly watch, and with all my other podcasting duties, especially infamously during football season when I'm really busy, it just hasn't been enough time and I want to get back on track because I do so enjoy talking racing with you just as much as talking Bond. We just don't get to do it as much. And so while we are planning on doing kind of a look back at last season, look ahead to 2020 season, Formula One and IndyCar episode coming up uh, really relatively soon. It's not not too long now. In the meantime, Alan and I thought that we would do a quick series of racing movie reviews. And so we have several in the hopper. We're going to do Ford versus Ferrari, but we're, we're kind of waiting until that one comes out on video so it could be fresh on our minds we watch it again. And we have others we're going to do. I'm sure, uh, was it Rush, the the one with Thor? Yep. Okay, as I call it. And then, but tonight, we're going to go back to one of the probably earliest of the sort of modern era racing films, a classic, a movie that maybe some of you haven't seen. You know, even if you're a big racing fan, you may not have seen this movie, but it's one that I think everybody with any interest in racing needs to see. What are we going to talk about tonight, Alan? Grand Prix. Simple as that, just Grand Prix. That's it, 19, 1966. Yep. This is a movie that was directed by the famous legendary John Frankenheimer, and it's got James Garner and Yves Montand, and it's got one of my favorite actresses, Jessica Walter. And <laughs> in one of those roles where, you know, nowadays we're so used to seeing her as like a grandmotherly figure slash Archer's mom on Archer. 
that seeing her as the hot young thing that the drivers are competing over is kind of mind-boggling to say the least, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and Yeah, I guess. And, and we also have Eva Marie Saint, who... It's kind of, this is, I mean, you know, she's still a very lovely woman here, but it's interesting. I, I It's interesting because they, they play her up as this gorgeous knockout that's, you know, tempting one of the drivers. And yet most of the movie, she kind of looks to me tired and, but Jessica Walter kind of is the, and, and then there's the, there's like the teenage girl that takes up with the young driver. Yes. Francois Hardy, the, uh, yeah. French French singing sensation that I'd never heard of before or since. <laughs> so anyway, there's quite an interesting cast to this movie, and we're going to get into it. Uh, I especially like Toshiro Mifune as the head of basically Honda. Mm-hmm. I, I loved him in Shogun and all of his other stuff, so it's cool to see him here. And we even get a Bond villain showing up at one point, don't we? Yes, one of our favorite Bond <sighs> villains, Adolfo Selly, uh, basically as playing Ferrari, but not Ferrari. Yeah, and, and it's interesting because he has two eyes, we now know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> After Thunderball, you'd have been uh, forgiven for thinking the poor man only had one eye, but he actually gets to use both of his eyes in this movie, so that had to have been a... And speaks up. in a slightly different voice in this one, because he's he, not dubbed by the same, that's <laughs> true. same guys. <laughs> and this movie was, was uh, just a year after Thunderball, so, it, I mean, he looks exactly like he looks in Thunderball. It's really remarkable how he, uh, you know, this movie is just hot on the heels of Thunderball, probably filmed within months of each other, so it's just yeah. cool to see him in it. So, all right, so we, I laid out kind of an outline for how we're going to maybe do this, and we can do it for the other ones, too, if it works, which is we're going to kind of introduce this movie and 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 what we're doing here, I already talked about we're doing this series of movie reviews about racing. We're going to talk a little bit about the basics of this movie. If you haven't seen it, don't panic yet, okay? Because if you haven't seen it, we're, we're going to do some basics, just kind of the kind of stuff you would get out of the trailer a little bit. And then we'll let you know when we're going to go into spoilers. So you can listen to the first part, not have anything really spoiled, and decide if you want to spend three... It's a three-hour movie, but I think it's every bit worth three hours. Uh, You can decide if it's three hours you want to spend that way, and if it is, then go watch it and come back and listen to the rest of the show. Does that make sense to you, Alan? Yeah, sounds good. And then once you come back, those listeners that haven't seen it, we will talk about some specifics. We'll kind of talk about how it ends, you know, the fate of various characters. And we'll kind of give a, an evaluation overall about what we made of it and its place in racing and movie history. So, with all that said, let's get into kind of the background stuff that you wouldn't consider spoiler about this movie. What 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 is your initial thought about this movie, Alan? It's one of the best motor racing movies that really captures the feel of motor racing um, and particularly Grand Prix racing of the mid 60s. Um, so this was, as you said, done in 1966. Interesting enough, it was actually filmed at the circuits during and around the races of the 1966 season. Mm-hmm. So they pretty much put it together pretty quickly between the end of filming and actually releasing it. You know, it's pretty, pretty rare that uh, it would actually be stuff that happened that season. So uh, it's an interesting mix of stage drama with the fictional drivers mixed in with actual footage of the races. So in some ways, it's actually a sort of docudrama, really, because mm-hmm. for anybody who's interested in Formula One of the mid-1960s, this, this is a sort of part documentary. Um, <laughs> there are tw- 29 active Formula One drivers in this movie. Wow. I just did a quick count. I just, I just didn't did recognize any of them, so... Yeah, I just did a quick count. So 
plus technical experts like a guy called Carol Shelby, who we'll be talking about in one of the other movies. So and John Frankenheimer, the director, was a club racer himself, but realized he didn't really have the skill to, to sort of go up the ranks. And so that he, he always wanted to do a, a racing movie, a Formula One r- movie. Uh, initially, he wanted Steve McQueen as the lead. But uh, Steve McQueen had a disastrous meeting with Frankenheimer's producing partner and basically didn't want anything to do with it. Mm. So they, they cast Steve McQueen's next door neighbor, which was James Garner. <laughs> Two of them literally live next door to each other in Hollywood, and just which is fine. Hmm? Does does that mean that Steve McQueen lived in the trailer on Malibu Beach next to James <laughs> <Yeah>. Garner's? <laughs> next to James Garner, yeah. So. <laughs> A little rock for uh, reference. So, so McQueen went off and made his own racing movie, Le Mans, which is also another classic, which we may or may not talk about going mm-hmm. forward. Oh, yeah. We'll put it on the list. Yeah. So just to give a quick overview of the plot without giving anything away, as you said, sort of trailer-level stuff. So this is set in the 1966 Formula 1 season, as I, as I mentioned. Um, it really revolves around four drivers, uh, James Garner um, character, um, Pete Aaron, who is uh, an American. Um, yeah, it's science who, fiction right there. <laughs> I love the yeah. fact that one of the top drivers is American. I'm like, oh, this is a science fiction film. Okay. Actually, for that time, it's not. We'll get into that when we get into the spoilers. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, yeah, so we have Pete Aaron, um, who is the American driver with a bit of a tarnished reputation. Um, we have uh, oh Brian Bedford playing Scott Stoddard, the, uh, the typical stiff upper lip British driver <laughs> um, <laughs> with a family background in racing. Mm-hmm. Um, then we have... Um, I don't know what's it. Jean-Pierre Sartre. Playing Jean-Pierre Sartre, the, the French, French world champion mm-hmm. uh, driving for Ferrari. And then we have, um, I can't remember the actor's name, but basically the young uh, Italian um, racer, Formula World motorcycle champion, who is like the charismatic young Italian, um, who is the number two Ferrari driver. So that it really is around those four guys mm-hmm. and the uh, the women who love them, um, and the so, uh, and the managers who own the who run the teams, uh, and the managers who run the fate. teams, and the machinations going on. So it's set around the season, um, which was only a seven race season that year. Um, compared to what are we now twenty one these yet? Interesting, these yeah. I was wondering how it could be so close at the end that like so many yeah. drivers have a chance to win the world championship at the end. But yeah, there's not that many races. I just assumed they were um, skipping a bunch or something. But yeah, that makes sense. Well, they sort of do skip a bunch because they sort of focus in on four or five of them. I mean, it yeah. starts at Monaco. Yes. Um, and they show that I may get the order wrong here because I don't have the notes in front of me. But they they show the French Grand Prix, the Belgian Grand Prix. Uh, so the French at Clermont, the French Grand, uh, the Belgian Grand Prix at Spa. Mm-hmm. Um, they mention Mexico, they mention America, but they don't. You don't see any footage from it. They mention Germany, but you don't see footage from it. Um, and the British, and then they do another, other set pieces at the British, uh, uh, the Dutch Grand Prix, mm-hmm. Zandvoort in the Dunes, and then the British Grand Prix at Brands Hatch, and then it, you got the big climax at the Italian the Grand Monza. Prix. At, Monza using the banking. Yeah, um, so, that was yeah. crazy. Yeah, and and yeah. I got a lot to say about that, but I want to point out that when that's the one. I mean, it's interesting because it gives you such amazing views of the tracks. I mean, it gives you views that we get now with television, but they never came close to having in the actual broadcasts I'm imagining of the races back then. So you see those tracks from street level, from the front of the front wheel of the car level, and yeah, that's. 
And it, and, it, and it shows the real difference between, for example, how Monaco looked back then, which is exactly like it looks now almost, and and um, and and Monza, which back yep. then Monza just looks like they're driving around a country road out in the middle of Italy, like running over sheep and stuff. You know, it's like it's so <laughs> amazingly different in some ways and the same in others. Uh, and again, particularly Spa, because at that point Spa was like a. Um, Seven mile long circuit that went out into the out into the country and past houses and stuff. And yeah, we'll get into that. That's crazy. Um, oh, that was Antonio yeah, Sabato right. that played Nino Ballini. That's it. Yes, thank you. Father of yeah. Antonio Sabato Jr. I assume that would make sense. Uh, uh, sort of makes sense. <laughs> you, you just actually touched on it. The other big thing here was um, that really makes this movie stand out. It really was the first time that anybody had successfully put cameras on race cars mm-hmm. um, and. Th- and very visceral positioning of them, feeling of them. You say, you know, some of them are a driver's eye viewpoint. Some of them are right down by the wheel. And one of the things I, I read was that uh, they started out trying to cushion the cameras to get, so it would be a smooth picture. And then they actually realized that the last thing they wanted to do was do that, that it was much better if they just bolted the cameras directly to the cars. <laughs> and bounce and the cam- you So you got the, the shake and, and the, and, the movement from the suspension and stuff like that. And it, it made yeah. it a lot more visceral. And in a lot of those scenes, it really does feel like you're actually <sighs> sat in the driver's seat. And the other thing is they, they drove them at speed. Um, yeah. They, they, they trained most, most of the actors um, and particularly James Garner, who took to it really well and actually mm-hmm. didn't go on to do amateur racing. Mm-hmm. Um, they were doing a, over a hundred miles an hour. Um, excuse me. saying <coughs> In some of these cars. And then they had, a um, Ford GT40, if you've watched Ford versus Ferrari, you know what one of those sides, mm-hmm. as a camera car driving in front or behind them. Um, so they took the front off a Ford GT40 and put a camera platform on it and had a world champion Formula One driver driving a GT40 in and amongst the other cars as they were moving around. Amazing mm-hmm. stuff that they oh, were doing. Yeah. And as I said, they actually did it during a Grand Prix weekend. They would film... Um, between practice and the race, they would film. They would stay the extra day while the track was still set up and film them. Um, at Monaco, they well, they they filmed a lot of the real race and had a lot of the sort of helicopter coverage that you now see on a Grand Prix was done by the Frankenheimer film crew first. Yeah. Um, and at Monaco, at Monaco, while the celebrations and the podium for the real winners was happening on one side of the track, they were staging their fake rostrum ceremony winners ceremony on the other side of the track at the same same time so they had the same crowd <laughs> i was um, wondering about that so you know they they actually did a lot of things in and around the actual events um as well so all which was very cool so it really does make it um a very like i said it really puts you in a mid-1960s grand prix and uh, if you know anything about that era as well just the ability to spot the people in the background or some of the other drivers and the way they did some of the uh, the stunt driving and the and the the stand-ins, you, you can sort of track through the helmets and stuff like that. So uh, there's a lot of drivers that I never got to see drive, um, and or watched on very grainy black and white TV. That the only real good color footage I've ever seen of them driving is in this movie. So uh, oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. So well, um, all right, I got a few things to to add. This yeah. is this is almost a fictionalized version of Formula One Drive to Survive on Netflix. 
It, you know, it, it's like if you took <laughs> yes. it's like if you took Drive to Survive and made most of the main instead of Sebastian Vettel and Daniel Ricardo and everything, you had actors playing them. You know, then it would be this, and you had more of the actual behind the scenes with the girlfriends and all wives. Um, yeah, the camera work though. I've got to say a couple more things about the camera work because I think that so much of what's great about Formula One that we get to see on TV now is stuff that we just take for granted because the camera work is so good. Between the helicopters, the cranes, the little cameras mounted on the cars, you know, there's a camera on a cable that flies along the uh, the, the pit lane. You know, there's they've done so many amazing things in Formula One and in IndyCar and in, I'm sure other racing to make us be able to see things from so many great vantage points now. That did not exist back then, right? But no, yet, not at all. But they totally simulate it by having their big film cameras, as you say, very cleverly put in position to, to give that illusion or to actually give that reality. So it's, it's interesting. I, I really recommend, if, if you haven't watched this movie or if you've watched it but you haven't watched it in a while or haven't thought about this, watch this movie again and during the racing and by the way I want to say this movie's not just about the racing scenes it's like if we're talking about Star Wars in 1977 we're going to talk about the special effects but everybody knows that you know that wasn't all there was to Star Wars there was a lot more than the special effects of the spaceships but you have to talk about the spaceships in Star Wars in 1977 okay well it's the same thing here there's a lot more to this movie than just the car racing camera work but the camera work is so amazing that we had to talk about it Okay, so go back and watch it, or watch it for the first time, and as you're watching the different camera angles and the, and the footage you're getting of the races, don't look at it through the eyes of you just watched a 2019 Formula One race and now you're watching this movie. Look at it through the eyes of it's 1966, okay? You wouldn't be seeing this anywhere else. The camera, I mean... Some of the things they do are dated. Like, they do a lot of split-screen and multi-split-screen stuff that was kind of cutting-edge in the 60s, but it really didn't age well. You know, by the 70s, it looked kind of cheesy. You can get past that. But between the music, the sound, especially the sound of the engines, you know, and everything in the crowd, and then you watch, and they just basically turn the camera on and, and edit it all together. And it's, it's so well edited all the racing footage and then the people looking on, the spectators and the characters that we know watching the races and they cut back and forth and back and forth. The editing of this movie really jumped out at me as just first class as they took this amazing footage they had and they cut it down into an exciting package and they interspersed reaction shots among it. Again, this is stuff we totally take for granted now but it really is like today's sky coverage of Formula One looks like TV trying to imitate this 1966 movie. <laughs> you know? So, I mean, it, yeah. it, it's really something to see. It is. Uh, I'm going to sort of pick up on three of your points, and hopefully I can remember which three. Um, first off, the montages and stuff, that was all done by Saul Bass, the great title designer who came in and did yeah. that. I actually, this is one of the first movies that actually used that. You, you're right, it, some movies that use it now and it looks dated but when you, this movie hit nobody had done that before the way mm. it was done here right with not just month uh, using you know and again you've got to remember this this was made for vista vision you know oh. so it was on the big screen that oh, curved yeah. around and people were literally able to watch different parts of the screen and see different parts of the montage and decide mm -hmm. which bit they were going to watch um and, and you got them you know the repeated shot on on top of a shot on top of a shot um 
it was absolutely mind blowing at the time. Yeah. Um, nobody had ever done anything like that before. And you know, if you watch it on a nice big TV, it works really well. Um, to my mind anyway, yeah. um, the music, um, Maurice Shaw's soundtrack is great. It's one of my favorite vinyl albums. I listen to it all the time. It's an awesome soundtrack. <laughs> um, and also the way that there was times, like you said, when they used the engines as the music. Yeah. Um, like particularly Monaco, there is the opening race. There is no music. There is no score. All you hear is the engines and the gear changes. Yep. Um, there's no music at all. Yet I think I think it's France or it may be Belgium. I can't uh, or Holland. There's one of the races later on where there is no engine sound and it is just a score and it's like a ballet. Yeah, that's right. Um, and then there's another race where they just focus in on the crowd reactions. Mm-hmm. So every single race that you see is filmed and edited in a different a way. Different way. Give, so it's not it's not just a boring, oh, it's seven races. Every single race has its own character. That's right. And it's presented and edited in its own way. And the editing is brilliant. Yeah, that's I, what I'm I saying. Completely agree. Again, like with Star Wars, you take something that's already amazing to see and then you edit it. I mean, you know, Star uh, people when I was a kid I didn't understand. I'm like, Star Wars won an Emmy, I mean an Oscar for editing. I'm like, editing? But if you go back as an adult understanding editing and you watch Star Wars, you're like, well, of course this won an, an Oscar for editing because editing made this movie. This, the soundtrack and the editing were the two things that made Star Wars, in my opinion. And it's the same way here. It's it's so well put to, It's so well constructed. You get the sense that Frankenheimer must have had like 80 miles of film when he was done, and he just went in there and chopped it into this amazing three hours with, like you say, they don't duplicate really anything. Every racing sequence is completely different, and yet and yet, it's obviously all of a piece. You know, you're this, it's the same cars, it's the same drivers, more or less. Um, it's the same era. Um, and, and that's um, another thing, before I talk about the, the cars, the, I, I especially wanted to note the camera work at Monaco, because like I said, it's, it opens in Monaco, which looks pretty much like it does now. And you just get yeah. these gorgeous vistas of the city, which is you know luscious enough to look at. And then you get all those great shots where they have the camera bolted underneath the front of the car, it seems like, or whatever. So it's amazing just for that. And then... Okay, the next thing is the cars I wanted to mention here while we're still in the non-spoiler section. Cause I got well, a few... I see. Go ahead. A couple of quick stories around the editing before oh, yeah. we get yeah. to the cars. Um, so that opening sequence, I'm not giving anything away here because it's in the trailer. The opening sequence, that brilliant opening sequence, title sequence, of the close-ups of the cars and the engine and the exhaust with the words Grand Prix in it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the mechanics on the, doing, you know, them working on the car and stuff. So... Do you know who the cameraman was who shot that sequence? I do not. Well, you just mentioned his best movie. So it was a young assistant cameraman named George Lucas. No way. Yeah. Whoa. I had no so, idea. Yeah. So uh, well, and he it was, was always a, he's was, a car nut anyway, and yeah, was, was, was one of his mentors. Yeah, but, it would make sense that he would be involved in a car movie. He was a car nut, absolutely. Star Wars is a car yeah. nut movie meets a western, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, and the other editing thing, you talked about Monaco. So when they started up this, and they were, they were going to film in the 66 season, and they went to Ferrari and said, we want to, and Ferrari's like, I don't want anything to do with it. You cannot use a Ferrari in this movie. Mm. You can't use the Ferrari name. You can't do anything. Hmm. Um, you can do whatever you like with anybody else. A bit like the Netflix thing. Your first yes. season, Ferrari, yes. Ferrari wouldn't have anything to do with it. Or Mercedes. You didn't, didn't want anything to do with this movie. So after... They'd filmed at Monaco. Frankenheimer edited a 30-minute sequence together with the footage from Monaco. 
stopped the production, flew to Maranello, <laughs> begged to see Mr. Ferrari, said, can I have half an hour of your time? And Ferrari's like, well, we don't even have a, you know, a projector room. And he's like, I bought a screen, I bought a projector, I bought a guy. <laughs> oh, this is great. And he basically, he basically played the 30 minutes for Ferrari. And at the end of it, Ferrari's like, you can use the Ferrari name, you can use whatever you want. You can film in the Ferrari factory, which nobody had ever done before. Wow. Um, which is why Ferrari is so central to the, to the movie. Um, I was going to ask you about that because it's, yeah, Ferrari's in it. And then all the other car car names, I was going to ask you if those were made up because they they're not anything around now. Jordan um, and clearly one of them is a knockoff of Honda. Yamura is obviously Honda, it's, right? It's, it, it, Yamura is Honda, though. Geeky spoiler alert, and it's not for the movie. Those Hondas are actually McLarens painted white. Um, <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, you hear BRM mentioned, you hear Lotus mentioned. Those are real ones. Um, but Jordan is just like jo- Well, William, the funny thing is Jordan like was fi- is, is a fictional F1 team at the time this movie was made. But then, of course, in the 80s and 90s, we actually did have a Jordan Formula 1 team, which <laughs> is completely unrelated to the movie. Oh, um, wow. But yes, most most of the uh, a lot of the ones that you hear, but the ones that you hear in the background commentary, like Ligier, Lotus, BRM, um, mm. Eagle, those were the real ones of the time. But the what the, the 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 main four characters, yes, Jordan and Yamura are completely made up. Yeah, but we kind of know yeah. who they are. I mean, Yamura is supposed to be Honda, and Jordan to Clearly. me is, seems like a Williams or a, somebody like that, right? Yeah, yeah, or a Lotus or whatever. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right, a couple more things. I said that, I said either the day this is the this movie is the Gone with the Wind of racing. I mean, not only because it's a big giant spectacle, but it's because it's about these relationships among these various people. And I mean, it could really be the same movie and be about people who are in any really dangerous line of work. It could be people who were in the military defusing bombs, you know. It could be yep. Any anything where you risk your life and and people around you that love you wonder why you're doing this. You know, it it really is. I mean, that's one of the things that struck me about this movie, is that on the one hand, it is so boosterish towards the sport, right? I mean, this is a movie yeah. that in some ways, like Drive to Survive, in some ways, it's designed to to make people want to go start being Formula One fans. On the other hand, it dwells so much on the dangers and people getting killed. That I mean, did at the time did people watch this and say, "Oh, I don't want any part of that sport because my gosh, it's so deadly," or did people say, "Oh, this sport is so dangerous, I have to see more." I, I can't imagine. Was it fifty-fifty on that, or did it lean more? What do you think? I think it lent more to um, it that really showed the excitement uh, of Formula One. I think it actually helped popularize Formula One, and not because of the danger. In the dangerous part of it, but at that point, most people knew about the danger in, in, in motorsport uh, and Formula One particularly. You know, um, I think of those 29 drivers I said that were involved in this movie, I think around just scanning down the list, probably around 10 of them probably lost their lives on the track um, over wow. the years, coming years. Um, so, and, and every accident that they showed in the movie is something that actually happened in a Grand Prix race at some point. And we'll maybe get into that when we get into the spoiler bit. I was going to um, ask you, yeah, if um, it's so seemed- none of those were fictional, uh, fictional incidents. They didn't all necessarily happen in one season, but over a period of probably the previous five years each, that there was an occasion when those things all happened at some point. Um, so yeah, you've got to remember that you know this was this was the period when um, it, you know it wasn't unknown for two or three drivers to 
to die in a year over a seven to ten year ten race period and a lot of them would also not just be racing formula one they'd be racing formula two they would be racing sports cars you know it's not like now where you, you're in your category and that's it um you know they would be racing every weekend in multiple formulas all over the world so you know some of them were, were died or injured in, in other series um but yeah motor race used to say on the back of the ticket motor racing is dangerous and uh, those days it, it really was um there's a couple of excellent documentaries that cover the whole drive for, for safety in Formula One, which sort of started really seriously a couple of years after this movie had been made. And yeah. I, yeah so. Well, and yeah, I, that's the thing that jumped out to me was, I mean, 1966 is not that long ago, honestly. And, you know, even in like the 90s, it was just 30 years earlier or something, which is, you know, not that long ago. And yet the tr- the one of the things that jumps out about me about that movie is how dangerous it was, not just to the drivers, but to the people in, on the... Uh, I mean, there are people just roaming around the sides of the tracks. And when somebody's injured, they don't like... I, they hardly ever put a yellow flag out. They would just like run out on the track and grab the body and run off before the next car comes flying through. I'm just... I mean, half the stuff that happens in this movie, today they would red flag the race. Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's just, am- it's just you, amazing. You see the photographers just at the side of the, you know, lying on the on the sidewalk, leaning, oh, you know, yeah. uh, the marsh- marshals with no protective stuff. Yeah. Nothing. Trees by the side of the road. Spectators walking it on the track. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah. It's just uh, astonishing. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's a very interesting time capsule. So, well, and, yeah. and, and the car, and then it gets me to the car. I was going to say that I think that. You know, for all that it's so much better now in terms of safety and everything, that I think that that's part of what makes it not quite as exciting in some ways nowadays. I mean, I love it now, and I wouldn't want it to go back. No, but you got to admit, today's Formula One is like guys with Nerf bats in foam rubber padding compared to this, which is like oh, yeah. gladiators with bare sword blades and morning stars. You know, I mean, it's. It's like you wouldn't want our athletes to be out there with with sword bare sword blades and and clubs, but it's a heck of a lot more interesting and exciting when they are than when they're wearing you know foam rubber and hitting each other with Nerf bats. You know, <laughs> I, I, it's just it's like we it gained a lot in terms of sanity and safety, but it lost a lot just in that visceral oh my gosh at any moment somebody's going to lose a head an arm a leg five spectators are going to get crushed and they're all going to die you know i mean i wouldn't want the sport to be like that but this movie really is kind of a window on what it used to be like and even though it's terrible it's pretty exciting you're just watching it like ready to put your hands over your eyes you know like it's a horror movie it, it almost is. It is exciting, yeah. And it was, you know, uh, it's going to sound terrible, but, you know, the, that's around the, the time that I really started to, to, to get, uh, you know, as, as a young kid, get really aware yeah. of Formula One and stuff. Um, and unfortunately, some of that tended to be because certain people died. Um, but, uh, you know, and I really started to watch it really seriously in the mid-70s, so probably another 10 years on from this. Um, but, uh, and even then, you know, it wasn't unknown for, for big accidents and people, people sure. get really seriously hurt. Um but, uh, yeah, you know, the fact is, you know, a lot of people do argue and some of the older racing drivers argue that it's gone too far with the runoff areas. And, you know, we, you look at, look at them racing on those tracks where, you know, if they put a wheel over, they're on, on, on slippery grass or a bank or there's a tree. It's like there's no arguments about track limits there no. like we have today, the, you know. Yeah, the tr- you exceed the track limits in this movie and you're, your ghost is arguing. 
Yeah, yeah. So there's, <laughs> there's, there's, there's a, none of that. The FIA um, has to use a seance to find out what your what your appeal is. Yeah. So uh, it could be argued it's gone too far the other way. Um, yeah. So the the, um, the cars yeah. the, the cars are the thing I wanted to get to too. I, right. When, when I first started watching it. This is, this, I've watched it now all the way through twice. I just watched it a few days ago, but I watched it about a year or two ago when I first got it from, from, from iTunes on, on my iPod and on my iPad. And the first time I started watching it, I was like, oh, it's those old cigar-shaped cars. Oh, man, this doesn't really bear any resemblance to the cars. I've, you know, I started watching racing you know, in the, in the mid-late 70s, early 80s, and, th- and they all look like they more or less do now in terms of overall shape, and these don't. But let me just right. tell you, no wings. Yeah, no wings. No, yeah. It's just a bullet. It's just a. It's just a rocket. But you watch these. You just give it a couple of minutes, right? If you tune in and, and your first reaction is, "Oh, this is old timey cars," and even when they show like their feet on the pedals, they're wearing like leather shoes that look homemade, and the pedals are all rough metal. They don't, you know, nothing looks like today with the supercomputer twenty thousand dollars steering wheels and all that. But give it a minute, okay? Because the visceral nature of that, like man and machine having to wrestle each other, it it doesn't matter that they look like kind of old fashioned. This is the last of the era of the cars before they started looking like they look now. And aerodynamics doesn't really figure into it, does it? It's just they're just brute force out there, and it's fun. It's fun. Yeah, to me, these are. I, I, I love. I mean, as much as. I'm into aerodynamics and ground effect, and I, I love that stuff too. But I really love these cars. Um, this sort of interim area between the switch from the, the front-engine roasters to the first rear-engine cars, which these were, mm-hmm. um, the, the arrival of the three-liter V8s in the back, um, be- beautiful, as you said, cigar-shaped cars, some of the most beautiful-looking cars, because they are just pure racing machines. Yeah. I mean, they're a little more than a seat, with a petrol tank around it, an engine strapped to the back, <laughs> and wheels. suspension on four wheels. <laughs> that's it. That's it. That's yeah. it, man. You're strapped yeah, I mean, onto you know, a missile. Yeah, th- there's not even a monocoque uh, one-piece chassis. There's still rail frame chassis. And, yeah, I mean, <laughs> Imagine if somebody had proposed a halo to those cars. They'd have, yeah. <laughs> they'd have laughed well, them out of them. Oh my God! A couple of people. Yeah, but a, a couple of them had uh, aero screens or windscreens. Um, yeah, that's but, true. Uh, yeah, so uh, to me, they, they are just pure. Um, I know they were dangerous, but they, they are the most beautiful looking race cars. They really um, are amazing. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. It's yeah. just, um, if, yeah, if, if, if your first reaction is, oh, this is somehow old fashioned or something, think of that as a, as a feature, not a bug, as we say on the wishbone. That's, um, yeah. that's something to celebrate because you're not going to be watching them competing over drafting and slip screens and all that. You're going to be watching them trying to bludgeon their way around the track and bludgeon each other out of the way. And it's a very different racing. And if you can, if you can adjust your brain away from 2020 to how it was then, you will enjoy the racing in this movie. And we have to pause here for just a moment to thank the people that keep our programs on the air. And for as little as a dollar a month, you can join their ranks. Just go to www.plexico.net, P-L-E-X-I-C-O.net, or just go to patreon.com and search for White Rocket Van Plexico. And for as little as a dollar a month, you can join the ranks. There are many benefits that you can see there on that page to joining, as well as just helping keeping our shows on the air. Here are the great folks who are currently supporting our programs. We have to always start with Matthew Flowers, Samuel Salvatore, Christopher Burleson, 
Phil M. Thor, Ben Spooner, William Glenn Matthews, Gary Grant, AU Fan KSC, Wynn Carroll, Brian Gray, Winston Body, Willie Carden, Tom Anderson, Susan Trawick, Logan Chilton, Stephen Thompson, Chris Usher, Steve Trawick, Richard Stevens, Clinton Stewart, and Christopher Stewart, Mickey B, William Morgan, Phil Davis, Joshua Corbett, John Otsuki, Preston Settle, Daniel Odom, AU Falling Up, Alchemist, Kevin Smith, Clarence Alford, Will Summerford, David Hegler, Johnny Caldwell, Theodore Gary, Reynolds Wolf, Joel Beckham, Valiant Hermes, Jacob and Robin Fleming, Clay Henson, Ann Kangian, Catherine England, George Gaston, John McCune, David Evers, Andrew Barber, Timothy, Steve Harlan, Dan Thompson, Wes Atkinson, Rich Reimer, Jarrett Albrick. Blake Heron, Stephen Houston, Cato the Barner, Danny Flack, Papa Todd, Russell Milling, Kevin Canoy, Don Zederman, Ross, Lane Middleton, Shannon Butson, Randall Walker, Hugh Anderson, Shane Bailey, Mick Vigicana, Chris Thrash, Tony Perry, Alex Wynn, Josh Teal, David Simpson, Earl Ricks, Mike Finley, and C.T. Wayne. And then we have Jeremy Minton, Wardam Wade, Spanky, J.W. Rice, Jason Albrick, Paul Bankson, Joseph Eiliff, Justin Bean, Kevin Mahan, Stephen Wyatt, Trevor Johnson, Auburn Elvis, Robert Drain, Brandon Smith, Royce Alvarez, Thomas Brinson, David Smiley, Matthew Wagstaff, Donnie Reynolds, Wade Carson, Ivor Evans, John Zavachin, Michael Morton, Lawrence Kane, Darren Pyle, Chris Camo, Ben Amos, Ruth and Darren Sutherland, Patrick Williams, Rob Morgan, Stephen Schuster, James Taylor, John Stubbs, Kenneth Brent Rains, Nicholas Craig, Joseph A. Miller, Mark Squire, plus the great Surfer Chickify, Chris Brent Rumble, our anonymous and one-time donors. We thank you all. Once again, to join their ranks, go to www.plexico.net, P-L-E-X-I-C-O.net, or to patreon.com. Yeah, actually, just just while you're also talking about the cars, um, and you sort of mentioned it with the drivers and their sort of leather boots. And mm-hmm. I mean, and also the fact that, you know, these guys are working with three pedals. Um, mm-hmm. So you see the footwork, great footwork because, the, uh, you know, they're trail braking, the left foot braking, the double D clutching. They're doing all the sort of stuff that you have to do with a race car if it's got three pedals. Manually changing gear, um, you know, manual gear shift. Um, you look, you know, their, their protection is basically they have the basic first iterations of uh, fire suits, which were still pretty. Flimsy, you know, yeah. open face helmets, uh, just goggles. Um, you know, some of them with balaclavas, some with not. Um, some of the balaclavas used to cover the fact that it's not the act of driving. Um, <laughs> I noticed that, yeah. In one case, very, very much in one case in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, you know, the little leather gloves with the backs of the hand, you know, with open backs on them and stuff like that. So, you know, very, very, very basic uh, safety equipment. Um, and also no seat belts. Oh my gosh! I didn't even think about that. Oh, because they go um, flying. Yeah, people go flying in this movie. Yeah, yeah. Because actually, the drivers around that because the, their biggest fear was fire. They actually wanted to be thrown out of the cars if possible. Um, they'd they'd much rather risk getting thrown out of a car than getting trapped in a burning car. Right. So they actually didn't want to wear they didn't wear seatbelts for a long time. So, That's unbelievable. Yeah. That's amazing. All right. So should we give the uh, the spoiler warning now and then proceed into a little more breakdown in our second half? Sure. All right. So we are now going to proceed into breaking down a few things specific to the characters and the plot. So if you haven't watched the movie, and I hope we've intrigued you to do so, go ahead and pause the podcast, go watch the movie and come back, and we're gonna, we will entertain you after you've been entertained by the movie with some talk about it. All right. So here we go. Now, um, 
let, I'm, I'm going to kind of run through the characters real quick and kind of what's going on with them, and then you jump in with any analysis you want to do with that. Because we haven't really talked about the, We talked a lot about the cars and the tracks and all that and the production, but not the characters. And that's what I didn't want to sure. give away. So we've got the, as you said, we you mentioned earlier, we've got the four main drivers, Pete Aaron, which is James Garner, uh, Jean-Pierre Sarty, the French driver, Yves Montan. Uh, Scott Stoddard is the British Brian Bedford as the British uh, driver who is injured at the beginning of the movie and uh, Antonio Sabato is Nino Barlini the young up and coming sort of Max Verstappen kind of kid okay now those are the four main drivers that we see and each of them has to some degree a woman well Pete Aaron, James Garner's character, really doesn't, for most of the movie, have a woman around him. But the other three have multiple women kind of in their orbits. And it's interesting to me how it plays out that each of the women reacts to what's going on with the racing season and the accidents and stuff. And each of them reacts in a different way. And they kind of do musical chairs in a way a little bit. And there's some jealousy and stuff and cheating and sleeping around type stuff. And then kind of by the end, everything sorts back out again for better or for worse, in some cases worse. So what did you think about that, about the human element of this movie and the characters and their relationships? Um, I like it. I, I hear one of the complaints about this movie is it's, it's a melodrama with a good racing movie attached. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and yes, it is a little bit of a melodrama, but actually you mentioned the Netflix thing. If you watch the Netflix thing, um, mm-hmm. you know, um, so there was a lot of melodrama in that oh, too. Yeah, so, absolutely. Um, so I, I think it's. I mean, obviously they've they've taken you know stereotypes and mm-hmm. attached them to, to various characters and stuff. But um, again, I think you know from what I've read and heard and some of the behind the scenes documentaries, you know, a lot of the things they, they picked up from talking to the actual racing drivers' wives. And at that point. Um, also, the wives and girlfriends were as much well-known and as almost as much a fixture as the drivers. Mm. Um, a lot of them were, as they usually are, very uh, uh, models, were models or were um, very attractive ladies who, uh, and they sort of touch on it in the, in the, in, in the movie when one of them's on the pit lane um, doing timing. Um, that's what the wives and girlfriends did. They, you know, they didn't have transponders and tag whore and... <laughs> They, they basically had the girlfriend sitting on the pit wall with, with, with twin stopwatches doing the timing for the team. Um, so they would be there in the pits and they would be as well known. Um, so, you know, people like Jackie Stewart's wife, Helen, was 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 just as famous. Uh, Jochen Rint's wife, Nina, was a model, very well known. Um, so they sort of taken a lot of those stereotypes and the, uh, and the, the, the sort of women who were around racing drivers and, you know, a lot of today's Formula One drivers, though, you know, wives, girlfriends or models or other athletes or, or whatever. And it takes toll. I mean, you know, Valtier Botas has just gone through a divorce with his yep. Olymp- his, his Olympi- Olympiad wife, um, mm-hmm. who's like an Olympic swimmer and stuff, because they just couldn't keep a marriage together under the strains of him, you know, and being a leading Formula One driver. So, you know, I have no doubt. Things- I have no doubt that's what happened with the Rosbergs. I think that Nico Rosberg told his wife, you give me 100% what I need for one more season, and if I win, I'll give 100% back and I'll walk away. And I think that's what happened. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think you know, they there are other people a- who've had very, very successful long-term marriages like Jackie Stewart and, um, sure. and Helen Stewart or, or you know, Joe and his wife or whatever. There's, you know, there's, there's many other married couples, but, 
the, those stereotypes are not unknown throughout the history of the sport. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, from if you read the various biographies and stuff that goes around, I don't think any of that behavior was particularly over the top either. Um, I think it was actually a pretty good mirror. And again, you're taking four, four to eight people to represent what's going on with 30 to 40 people in a very intense environment over a very compact period of time. Yeah. So that, so they're going to conflate a lot of that stuff and focus it in on those three or four characters and their partners, and that, that may make it seem a little over the top. But I think it's all really got a, a good basis in stuff that was actually happening around that time. So. I think, you know, I'm going to break down each one of them real quickly, their plot lines, but I think that, honestly, you could take Nico Rosberg and Lewis Hamilton 2016. That was the first year I started watching Formula One. I picked a really good year. And I think you could make an amazing movie like this out of out of that season by making the protagonist Nico Rosberg and his wife trying to like hold. And again, I'm just going to fictionalize it here. I don't know, but trying to hold their marriage together while he goes up against just this this juggernaut that is Lewis Hamilton. It could be you know you could make up fictional characters or whatever, but you you have this one guy who's single and is just unstoppable, and then you have the guy who has a wife and a new baby, and he's like, I've got to get out, but I've got to win. And just give me one more year to try to do it. And then you could have like the Sabato character be, you know, um, uh, Max Verstappen coming along and you could have the Sebastian Vettel type character, but it could really focus on, you know, this guy going up against his great nemesis who's just so invincible and finding some way to squeeze out a win and then walking away. I think it would be an awesome movie. That 2016, it's too bad they, there wasn't a drive to survive that year, you know, because it really, that, that would have made a great story. But, um, well, yeah, I, I mean, if you just want to go back a few years before you started watching it, there was mm -hmm. a period when um, Lewis Hamilton was hang, uh, was basic, um, very serious partner with girl from the Pussycat Dolls, Noel. I can never remember her last name. Okay. Um, anyway, she was from the pop group, the Pussycat Dolls, Nicole, whatever. Um, so they were together for like five or six years. Hmm. Uh, and she was always in the pits and he used to have the posse of the pop stars and stuff. And to be honest, I think that's when he was, he, you know, he was not at his best was, if mm -hmm. he was ever not his best, but you know, right. it had a, it had a definite impact on him. And again, you could put that in a movie. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, it, it, it could be, you know, the hotshot young guy with the pop star singer and the posse, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and that's getting to him and the guy with the marriage and stuff. And yeah, you could do that with today's formula one. Yeah. Um, it would be good. You know, so, yeah, these stories yeah. really write themselves. This human drama. So, all right. Yeah, so, yeah. so the, the the story, the movie, kind of uh, circles around these four main drivers. And let me just throw out a couple of things about each one. I mean, I think that while Pete Aaron, the James Garner character, is is supposed to be the main character for the for American audiences and whatever. I mean, I feel like honestly, it's really about he's kind of almost peripheral in a way. It, this, the, because he never changes. You know, at the very beginning, he's he's involved in this accident that hurts Scott Stoddard and injures him for part of the season. But it's not entirely clear. I mean, I've watched it twice, and it's not entirely clear if it's really his fault. He was being stubborn, but he did try to let him go by, and they have a crash, and they both get, you know, but Scott Stoddard's the one that really suffers the worst. Okay, so it's kind of about Scott Stoddard being injured. He can't race part of the year. And his girlfriend, who is Miss Archer's mom, um, uh, the great Jessica Walter, she kind of like 
drifts away from him because she can't deal with the threat of the danger of injury. And she kind of briefly takes up with James Garner's character and then eventually goes back to Stoddard once he proves he's tough enough to come back and barely survive, you know, racing again and barely losing. So that's that's that story. And you mentioned that he has a brother that had been killed that was more successful. He's got the whole family in England and all that. Okay. The other, I think, really central story is Jean-Pierre Sardi's story where he has a wife that he's an older guy. He's clearly at the end of the line. He, he's wanting to get out, but it's almost like the mob. He feels like he can't get out. He's trapped in it. He, he's, he's, he's kind of wanting to quit racing, but he can't. He has a wife that won't give him a divorce, but doesn't really love him and is barely ever around. He falls in love with Eva Marie Saint, this magazine photographer from America, a writer. And you know, you get the sense that something is lurking there for him. It just You could see the Grim Reaper hovering over his shoulder most of the movie, unfortunately, even though he's so smooth and suave. And, of course, he has kind of the sad ending. And then, kind of in a way, almost comedy relief is the Nino Barlini character, the young, up-and-coming former motorcycle driver, because what's funny about him, he's just a very happy-go-lucky... You know, at one point, his girlfriend says something like, why aren't you afraid? And he says, because I'm immortal! You know, well, that's just the youth. You know, he's... He's this, yeah. the youth that thinks nothing can happen to him. And the best thing about it is he has this girlfriend who looks like about a 19-year-old little you know, nymph. And she's with him for a while. And then he starts being more popular and women are hanging on him. And he's kind of paying other attention to other women. And so she goes off and finds somebody else too. And they, they kind of break up. And it's kind of like no big deal for either one of them. So... They have kind of the most harmless story cycle, I think, of all of them. Um, so, so take us through your thoughts on those on those central characters and their relationships. Well, actually, going to go back to who's the movie the movie about? And yeah, I, I think you're right. I think it was designed, written, filmed that James Garner's character would be the lead character. But to me, this has always been a movie about Sati. Yes, exactly. I agree. Um, he, he comes across because he's the one that goes through the biggest art because, you know, at the beginning, mm-hmm. he's the, you know, um, you know, what is it she says to him that that's not, when he talks about the fact that, you know, if he sees an accident and it's a really bad one, he'll put his foot down because he knows everybody else yes. is going to lift going by it. He goes faster. Like, uh, which, by the way, is a direct quote from uh, Phil Hill, the American world champion. Um, Interesting. From a couple of seasons earlier. Um and we'll get back to Phil Hill in a minute. But um, he, uh, so you start off with that. She says, that's a terrible way to win. And he's like, there is no terrible way to win. There is only winning. That is really, so, you know, at the, yeah, very at, good. At, at, at Monaco, he is still like, you know, 100% focused on it's all about winning. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'll win at any cost type thing. And then as you go through the movie, you know, you eventually get to that point when, as you say, you know, it gets to the, you know, the, yeah. Uh, typical pub scene in after the british grand prix and he's outside and he's like why the hell are we doing this what you know this is wrong i just i'm gonna give up you know monster will be my last race and stuff so he's the one who goes through the the character arc he he's he's really the only one of the four who sort of questions his own mortality and what's going on and makes a decision um you know um brian bedford yeah you know he's 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 chasing his brother's ghost um Mm -hmm which is sort of is an interesting one um you know um also interesting that you know he races all dragged up and that you think they wouldn't get away with that now but you know thinking back in the 90s with uh yeah um like when uh formula one and indycar driver nigel mansell like broke his back at phoenix the first time he went out on an oval and then for long beach he basically 
pumped himself so full of drugs that they had to pour him into the car, you know. So they they sort of um, still still doing that sort of stuff these days. You probably wouldn't get away with it quite as much as you did in the sort of nineties. But um, so again, not unknown for drivers to to do that. Um, very, in, you know, it was interesting sort of to see him at home and just be again completely focused on I've got to get back in the car I'm going to drive you know um, chasing the ghost of big brother that was that was sort of interesting you know that he would drive drugged up just just to keep driving um, and he wasn't a terribly body- likable character I mean I, that was the no, thing he's about not. him he's, he's, he was, we're supposed to be somewhat I think sympathetic to him he loses Jessica Walter for a while eventually she comes back to him and yet, I don't know if it was just Brian Bedford's looks in this movie or how he played it, but I never felt much sympathy for him. I mean, you're, you know, like you say, for one thing, the movie is designed for us to root for James Garner, and he's yeah. they're direct competitors. They're on the same team, and they're direct competitors on different teams. And so, if we're supposed to root for James Garner, and and Scott Stoddard comes across, I just can call him James Garner because people know who that is, and Scott Stoddard comes across as just sort of like this wishy-washy. Oh, uh, you know, well, my wife, my girlfriend left me. Oh, well. Oh, my brother's dead. Oh, well. I mean, he just, he never, he's not a dynamic, charismatic figure at all. He's kind of a pitiful figure through most of this movie, and I had a hard time really getting behind him. Yeah, and I don't know whether he's, the one thing this movie doesn't have is an antagonist. Yeah. And I don't know whether he was meant to be the antagonist figure, but if he is, he didn't. He wasn't a strong enough character for no. that to come across. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the thing. Uh, he, he's almost written like the sympathetic protagonist, but yet you can't really admire him, and yet James Garner is written so, you know, you like him, you want to root for him, so you end up with two protagonists, they're not even counting Sarti, you end up with two protagonists that you can't decide which one you're... Yeah, it's just, it's a very strange... If there's anything about this movie that I think is constructed kind of awkwardly, it's the relationship among the main characters, because it's not... I'm not saying I want it to be artificially clean-cut, you know, clear-cut, but right. it's it's almost artificially opaque in that way. Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think you you are right with the Bandini character. I think he's meant to be comic relief. Um, clearly uh, modeled on the motorcycle racer uh, Giacomo Agostini at the time, who was mm. like fifteen times motorcycle world champion, um, who did eventually race cars, um, but a, a little bit later, sort of more in the seventies. Mm. Um, interestingly enough, the the mod- they talk about him being a motorcycle world champion and wanting to become a race car world champion. The only person who's done that is John Surtees. And at the beginning of the movie, Sarti is actually wearing John Surtees' helmet because Surtees was driving for Ferrari at the beginning of the 66 season. Oh, wow. So that that that, that blue striped hel- the helmet with the blue tape on it, mm-hmm. that Sarti's, that's John Surtees' helmet because Sarti... <sighs> went, because Sarti was driving for Ferrari, so when they did the long shots, the actual race stuff, it looked like Sarti. Partway through the season, Sarti's and Ferrari fell out, and Sarti's left Ferrari. Ah. So you'll see that Sarti's helmet changes <laughs> with no explanation partway through the movie. Okay. Because he's suddenly driving, racing with a helmet of British uh, American driver Mike Parks, who replaced John Sarti's at Ferrari during the 66 season. So, yeah. So he starts off with John Surtees' helmet, and then he gets Mike Park's helmet. All right. Um, well, I have another helmet question then. Am I crazier with Scott Stoddard wearing Jackie Stewart's helmet? Yes, because Jackie Stewart did all the stunt driving, which is why. So, um, like I said, they, they tried to teach the drivers how to drive race cars. Mm-hmm. Brian Bedford did not know how to drive a car <laughs> at all. Oh, Never wow. driven a car. 
Wow. So they couldn't train him, and he, 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 they could, he was so bad they couldn't train him. So Jack, that's why he always had in the in-car shots, mm. his balaclava is always pulled all the way up, and he's got dark goggles. Yes, I was and wondering yes, about that. Because it's Jackie Stewart doing most of the driving. Oh, and okay. Even when it was somebody else, they put Jackie Stewart's helmet on. So they're all wearing um, – James Garner is wearing um, Chris Amon's, the New Zealand driver's helmet. Um, so all their helmet designs are actually helmet designs for contemporary Formula One drivers. I thought I recognized that Scottish kind of tartan stripe yeah. around it. That yeah, was... why, and they never explained why an Englishman would be wearing a, a was, helmet with a Scottish yeah. tartan. <laughs> yeah, I kept looking yeah. for Stoddard's Scottish connection. I was given, I was, I was seriously this time through. I thought about. It. I'm like, all right, I'm gonna figure out if it says we're in Scotland or something, and it didn't. I'm like, what the heck, man? He's got the Scottish yeah. helmet on, and it looks like Jackie Stewart. It would have taken like one line of dialogue to fix that. Wouldn't yeah. It? Oh yeah. man. So. Yeah, yeah, but so, yeah, it's Jackie Stewart. So. All right, and 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 finally, I wanted to get your thought on James Garner's character. I mean, to right. me, I was going to get to him. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Go ahead. No, I was going to say. I, I again, I'm not quite sure what you meant to feel for that character. Um, you know, he is a bit of an underdog at the start. Yes, he sort of caused the accident, ended up in the harbor, mm-hmm. injured his teammate. Um, so again, both things that actually happened. Um, and we can maybe get to those in a minute. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, he. I'm. Not quite sure where they were going with that with that character. Um, he starts out at the underdog. I think you meant to feel sorry for him, but to be honest, he, he just doesn't really seem to be much of a team player. No. <laughs> uh, um, and he obviously has a reputation for complaining um, because, like, nobody else will touch him. None of the other teams will touch him. Um, so that's interesting. And he's, you know, also, I think, meant to be shown to be a bit ruthless when Yamoto asks him that question about, you know, if I had to sack one of my other drivers, would you have? complained and he sort of doesn't say anything right um you know um so yeah i'm not quite sure where you where your sympathy is meant to lie with with him at all um i think he's meant to be sort of the point of view character um and i like it i I sort of like him but he sort of just put a way giving the end away he sort of lucks himself into the world championship Mm -hmm. which is again not unknown in reality but I don't. I never really got the feeling that he deserved it. No, no, and and the fact that he was willing to shack up with uh, Jessica Walter Stoddard's girlfriend or wife or whatever she was there for five minutes, yeah. I was. I kind of lost a little bit of respect too. I mean, he was more of a gentleman for a while, but she really kind of. They they had an interesting relationship where they were kind of like enemies for a long time, and then yeah. she kind of comes around. I think because she sensed that that James Garner's character didn't have the same qualities that she was not currently liking about her husband. Right. But then once her husband showed that he was tough and could come back and race again, she was right back with him again and, and said adios to, uh, to James Garner. Yeah. And again, I never quite got my head around that reconciliation and what it was that made her go back to him. Yeah, no. Changed much. No, it didn't but. make it didn't make a lot of sense. Honestly, that was the. Yep. I think that's the weakest part of the movie in a lot of ways. It's it's so strong in so many ways, but that you know, trying to decide who the main character is, who you're supposed to root for, and and the movies. I mean, it, it's it's not that the movie is almost. It, it's it's not like it's intentionally trying to say. I don't think there are no heroes and winners here. It's just that it's not clear enough in delineating who they're supposed to be you know it's 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 more of a failure in a way but i'm going to say more about that when we get to the very end but so so what else about 
while we're in the spoiler section here, and then we can kind of do a conclusion, but what else about this movie do you definitely want to touch on before we kind of well, give our overall touch, evaluation? You, you touched on it earlier, and I mentioned that, you know, the, the accidents and the danger and stuff. So mm-hmm. so every, every single one of those things actually happened. Wow. So at, Mo- at Monaco, over the years, two people have been in the harbor. Um, <laughs> I've gone off and um, actually one was like the year before I think 65 was the last time somebody had actually gone off and gone into the harbor so that that that's that happened um the crash at that point this is a real sad one but the reason they staged the crash at that point one of the t- one of the advisors was a race driver called uh, Bandini um and they asked him at Monaco what, what you know if two cars were going to come team cars were going to come together at what point would that possibly happen and he said at that point which mm. you know is coming out of the tunnel so that she came by the harbour, mm-hmm. where we still see people getting together today. Um, yep. So they staged it there. The year after, 67 Monaco Grand Prix, he actually crashed and got trapped in his burning car at that exact point that he said that oh, accident would happen. Wow. Um, so um, so that, the accident at that point, car going to the harbour, that, that, that's real. Uh, it has happened or did happen. Um, all right. So then we have, what are the other big ones? We have... Um, the one at Spa where um, Sati's wheel falls off and they hit the two kids who were like running across the road. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, American driver Dan Gurney had had an accident at Spa about three years previously in which uh, a, a young kid on the side of the road had got caught up in the accident and got killed. So, um, so again, that happened. Um, and then the big one at the end, oh, you know, um, no, we'll do James Garner's one. James Garner at Brands Hatch with the car on fire. We still see that today. I mean, it happened last this year with Lando Norris. Uh, or was yeah. it Carlos Sainz? It was one of the McLarens went up in flames anyway this year. Yeah. So nothing changes because that was a McLaren going up in flames. Um, but uh, so, you know, that sort of thing happens. The fun thing there, apparently, I don't know if you know the story, was that uh, Frankenheimer, because they filmed it at Brands Hatch with a whole bunch of extras and Frankenheimer couldn't get the crowd reaction he wanted. So on the second take, they blew up the tea truck because <laughs> it was a Brit- it was a British crowd, and all they wanted to do was get, get their tea break. So we blew up the tea wag- he blew up the tea wagon, and that got him the, the shocked reaction he wanted from the crowd. Attention, so. attention, crowd! <laughs> Two of the drivers have been killed. Mumble, 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 and the tea <laughs> wagon has been destroyed. Ah! Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! So, and Garner actually did that stunt himself. Bit, uh, being Doesn't, surprise stuff, so. Doesn't surprise me. Doesn't surprise me. Actually, he did most of, most of his driving and most of the stunt work mm-hmm. um, himself. And you say he went um, on to get into driving after this. I remember, and and yes, he was, he be, yeah. And he kind of he helped. Did. He was in, he was involved in Rockford in in the in the choosing of the gold Camaro because he liked you know after having driven a lot yep. of stuff he he knew what he wanted. So yeah, yeah, yeah. That's he so was cool. not quite Paul Newman level of yeah. uh, success, but yeah, or Steve McQueen, but yeah, he was. He, they always reckon that basically he could have he could have put a Grand Prix car on the grid. Wow. Um, yeah. Um, oh yeah. You know. And then the the of course the the one at the end um, with um, Sarti going over the banking at Monza. Oh. That's that was a throwback to um, the nineteen sixty one um, Grand Prix where um, American Phil Hill won the World Championship for. Ferrari and actually Sarti points at a picture when he he and Louise are in the um, mm-hmm. in, in, in his club and there's a picture uh, on the wall and she points to it and says and reads it and it says Sarti world champion 1961 that's actually a painting of Phil Hill in his Ferrari 
winning the 1961 World Championship. Oh. That four, um, Shark Nose Ferrari is Phil Hill's Ferrari. There we go. Uh, uh, and he won that in 61 at Monza when his teammate Von Trapp, Von Tripp, not Von Trapp, Von Tripp, <laughs> uh, Wolfgang Von Tripp, um, crashed not quite on the banking year. It was actually at the entrance to the to the um, the banking, but he did go over the over that and get thrown out of the car and and was killed. And that basically meant that um, Phil Hill won the championship. So that thing of the the Ferrari crashing at the banking and then the other driver winning the championship is is there um, is true. And there's actually a very good book called, I think it's called The Limit, Life and Death on the Grand Prix Circuit, which tells the story of the 61 season and Phil Hill's win and his um, competition with with uh, Von Tripp um, leading up to that fatal day. Um, but it, it's a really good book about that era of Grand Prix racing. So um, and Phil Hill is all the way through the movie. He actually plays um, James Garner's teammate. Okay. So he's yeah in this in in this movie the, and the other the driver that got the the other driver that you see as a character rather than just a background driver is Graham Hill um, who plays somebody called Bob something or other I can't remember his character's name um, but he's the tall English guy with the sort of handle you know the uh, mm. fighter pilot moustache and the, the the tie and speaks very proper English and messes yeah and, and says a few things that's Graham Hill who um, was. Uh, father to 1996 champion Damon Hill um, oh, okay. Graham Hill is the only person to have done the thing that Fernando Alonso is not trying to do he's the only person to have ever done the tri- triple um, Formula 1 world champion Indy and Le Mans so oh, okay yeah I'm just looking at a picture of him he does look like a, an Errol Flynn type uh, yep. fighter pilot racer doesn't he that's interesting he really is like out of central casting wow um, yep. yeah yeah that I want to talk about this. The end for for uh, Sardi. That um, that is yeah. really horrific. I mean, I I was shocked all over again watching it for the second time this week. That that he um, you know I mean it, that he dies in retrospect is not surprising at all. It seemed like they were setting that up that he had no way out, and the only way he had out was to for cruel fate to you know to get him. But man, I mean to go over the embankment and be lying in the branches of a tree and they had to drag him out of it and. Clear. I mean, the thing it really shows is how racing in its earlier decades pushed the speed equation further, and only in the last few decades have they paid as much attention to safety for the drivers and for the audience, you know, for the spectators. It's like they took it as far as they could go with people just getting killed left and right. And then at some point it's like they flipped a switch and said, you know, maybe now that we've done all this, maybe now we should actually pay attention to people living through this sport. You know, it's, it's, it's really remarkable. Yeah. Yeah. I was actually just looking at the Von Tripps thing. Um, I'd forgotten actually when his car went over, um, the side, there was 15 spectators killed as well. It wasn't just, man. Yeah. So yeah, it's, <laughs> it was a very, very dangerous time. For, um, uh, and like you, you say, when you used to go to motor racing, it always used to send the back of the ticket. Motor racing is dangerous. Yeah. You're here at your own risk. Do, do you know uh, the story of why the Indianapolis 500 was called the Brickyard? I'll just throw this yeah, in really quick. Was, yeah, because huh? originally it was a brick. It, it, the track was bricks. It was brick the second year forward, but not the first. Not the first, no, no. First year it was like gravel. Yeah. And the car went around the turn and just rolled right off the course and crushed a bunch of people in the audience. And they thought yep. they were never going to be able to have it again, and so Fisher put down um, bricks. Bricks, yeah. So um, yes. I, that's that story is forefront in my mind, not just because of racing, because I'm currently, as you as you and many others know, I'm currently writing the sequel to Vegas Heist, Miami Heist, 
and the location of the heist this time around is Fisher Island, the island that was named after the guy that built the Indianapolis 500. So there's a there's a circuitous tie to what I'm working on right now to the to racing and to the Indy and, and all that. So in the brickyard. So yeah, I mean, just maybe we'll talk about it when we talk about Le Mans. But you know, you know, the the worst accident in motor racing was was Le Mans in '55, where I think it was 85 spectators. Were Good so, God, uh, that's just unbelievable. Yeah, I have heard about so. You know, as things as things sort of as progressed, yes, it's you know, you know, when I first started watching motor racing, you know, you could you you um, the fence was right by the track, and you could hang hang over the track, and it sort of gradually moved further and showed my age here, moved further and further back. You know, yeah. so um, yeah, that's a, probably I think a, on balance a good idea. On balance is a good idea. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so I want to mention the end, and and then how much the movie made. Now, by the way, I'll just go into the mention now. It made twenty million dollars. In 1966, I calculate that's about 158 million, 159 million now, which is not all that much. But I guess movies weren't making a billion, you yeah, know, a relative billion yeah. dollars back then, so that was still pretty. It good. was one. Of, it was one of the top ten gross, top ten movies for that year. Yeah, should have been even bigger than that, though. I guess that's 66. I'm trying to think. Did, did uh, that maybe the Ice Station Zebra came out? So that's two really, really good movies. Well, actually, movies. I was just just looking. It was number nine. So okay. number one was The Bible in the Beginning. <laughs> Okay, haven't heard of that one. Nope. Number two was Hawaii, which I assume may be the Elvis Presley one. I don't know. Number three, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? Number four, The Sand Pebbles. What were these people watching back then? My gosh. I don't know. Number five, A Man for All Seasons. That is a good movie. Yeah, sure. That's uh, 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 Number six, The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. Oh, well, there you go. Yes, sir. Now we're talking. Uh, Number seven, Lieutenant Robin Crusoe, United States Navy. Oh, I remember that movie. I saw it when I was a kid. Yeah, that's good. It's a, it's a Disney uh, comedy. Num- number eight, The Russians Are Coming, The Russians Are Coming. Oh, please. And then number nine was Grand Prix, uh, just ahead of Blow Up, which was the David Hemmings uh, 60s, swinging 60s photography one. So what year did I, Ice Station Zebra come out? I was thinking it was 66. Maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, must be different. Uh, yeah. Oh, but anyway. While I looked that up. So um, are you ready to talk about the very ending? Yeah. Do we haven't already? All right. Because here's what I took from the, the ending. Uh, oh, 68. Never mind. I say Zebra came out in 68. No wonder I love it. It's the same year I was born. So we get to the end, and poor uh, Jean-Pierre Sarty is il est mort. All right. He's dead. Yeah. And Stoddard has reclaimed his bride by finishing second and, and being you know he's his broken body barely you know made it through the race and they and garner invites him up on the podium and tashiro mifune is excited because honda's won the world championship and he's he and his voice actor paul freeze are both excited (laughs) Mm -hmm. and um and uh you know i guess in some ways if there's an antagonist at all it's jeff jordan jack watson playing him as the owner that kind of fires james garner uh, won't listen to him that he doesn't think he was responsible for the accident and, and is kind of his antagonist the rest of the movie, but that's pretty weak. Um, uh, Antonio Sabato, Nino Barlini, he loses his girlfriend, but he goes off. He's got plenty more where that came from. So I think that, you know, you end up with James Garner winning it all. But let me paint you a picture of the very final scene, and then you tell me what you think about the ending and, and all this. At the very end, after it's all over, we have James Garner standing on the track empty and alone right and and you hear the cars roaring away but they're invisible and they're gone and he's standing there and and here's kind of how i interpret that because i'm sure anybody everybody can interpret differently 
I interpreted that as is just kind of showing he's alone, that he's he's won it. You know, all the way through the movie, the question keeps being asked of these guys, why do you care? What does it matter? What's it all for? You know, that's the existential question that that Sarty keeps wrestling with is 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 what is this for? And is it worth risking my life over and over when there are other things I could have that, you know, because the constant thought is you can either have a, a wife and family and a loving supporting system or but that softens you and takes away your edge or you can be a racer. And it's kind of like James Garner chose just to be alone and be a racer. And at the end, with Sardi dead, having answered that question kind of in a negative way, and Stoddard's a broken man, even though he's got his wife back. I mean, it's like Garner looks around and says, well, I've won, but I'm all alone. Even the ghosts of the cars have driven away. And he's kind of left asking that question, what was it all for? And that's why I said that I'm not entirely sure what side of the argument this movie comes down on because it absolutely glamorizes the sport. But at the same time, there's some really deep stuff here about, is this even worth all this? You know. So how do you read that ending and what it's trying to say? Yeah, I think it's very much that uh, at the end, you know, the guy who sacrificed everything and ends up alone is the one who becomes the winner. And he, yeah. is it is it sort of worth it? Um, it it's an interesting reflection, um, very different from sort of today's thing of, you know, being the world champion. Um, it's, yeah, I, I, I've never really quite understood it. Um, mm mm-hmm. Of what exactly it's trying to say, I think. I think it really does come down to, you know, at the end of the day, it, it is about you know if you if you're going to win to that level, you really do you know need to sacrifice everything and just it's just about you and nobody else, um, which you know I, we sort of said this before on the open wheel other open wheel podcast. You know, the the, the real champions tend to be really obnoxious bastards. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, um, so, you know, they have to be, you know, 110% focused just on themselves and what they're trying to achieve. Um, and mm-hmm. sometimes that means they, you know, they end up alone or break relationships or, or whatever. Um, so I think it, it's sort of that. Um, it, it's a very ambiguous ending. Yeah, I will give you that. Um, and I'm not I sure think it's, it's also... I'm, sorry, I'm, just, I'm not sure it's trying to make a stand either way. I think it maybe in some ways is just kind of laying out the highs and the lows and saying, you know, take your pick or embrace yeah. both. yeah. Um, I, I actually do find it quite evocative. Uh, maybe this is just me being an idiot, but so, you know, quite often if, when I get get to get to race tracks, and you know, if, if I'm at a track when there's no track activity and you can be on the track, I do actually just like to stand there and sort of listen for the ghosts of the cars, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, sort of do do that. I've always liked doing that. James Garner walk of walking down the, you know, the start finish straight and listening to the sort of you know the echoes of the past, um, particularly at sort of you know famous tracks uh, that i've been lucky enough to to be at so um i sort of get that um but what it's is about the character i'm very ambivalent about actually pete aaron as a character anyway like i said earlier i'm not quite sure mm-hmm. what to make of him um for me it's always been sarty's movie which makes his enemy more poignant i think um so yeah that was a complete rambling and nonsensical and <laughs> an insightful answer, but I, I don't really have an answer for you. Ben, no, I, I think I think you're right. I think that's it. I mean, it's yeah. I think it's very ambiguous. I think it both celebrates the sport and 
in some ways condemns it and you're left to just kind of sort through it and say it's kind of a mixed bag that you you can focus on the parts that you think are important if you think that you know if you can you can read this movie as a dire warning of how dangerous this sport is to health of the drivers health of the spectators and the marriages and relationships the drivers you can absolutely read it that way you can also read it as a spectacularly gorgeous view on how exciting of a sport it is and how you should run right out and buy tickets to it tomorrow. And I mean, I think it does both of those pretty equally well. Yeah, I think it does. Yeah. Yeah. So, all right. Any, well, we got to rate it, um, on a, on an A to F, A from an A plus down to an F. What do you give this movie overall as a recommendation to people to watch it? Or not? I've always I've always rated it as the best racing movie ever filmed. I don't think any technically. I don't even even with Le Mans because um, actually I think Le Mans uh, doesn't quite get there and the story the story's not so good. So um, I think technically um, it's really up there. I, mm-hmm. I think the, the the melodrama is really pretty spot on. Some of the characterization we talked about is a little off. So uh, I would probably give it an A rather than an A plus. But I've always rated it as one of the best, if not the best, motor racing movie yet done. Um, a couple of others have come close-ish, but I think this is, even now, however many years on we're, we're talking, um, you know, almost 40 years on, I think it is, no, more than 40 years on, aren't we? Blimey. Um, mm-hmm. I still think it's the, the you know, the best, um, it, it's, the, it's, it's the best evocative, visceral feel of what motor racing is about, I think. Um, yeah. I, I don't think anybody. I don't think anybody's come close to it from that point of view. Yeah, I, I have a hard time because I like it better. I liked it better the second time by far. The first time I watched it, and I was just kind of reacting to the individual moments and not putting a lot of thought into the overall that we've talked about tonight. And I put a lot more thought into the message and and how it conveyed it and all that this time. And I got a lot more out of it the second time around. So. <clears throat> So I'm going to give it an A- minus, with the caveat that it's risen from like the B level to an A- minus the second time I watched it, and I fully expect I'll only appreciate it even more the next time, and I'm shading more toward an A than an A-, minus, honestly. So I'm kind of halfway between an A- minus and an A, if I can invent my own uh, you know, A- minus plus kind of <laughs> halfway in between. Yeah. So, um, all right. Well, um, Last thoughts 54, before we 54 about, years, by the way. I just did the math. 54, 54 years. Wow. Isn't it amazing? Yeah. So it's time yeah. to make a... It really is time to make a remake of it with a new cast and new characters and, and more it true never to the happen. current... <laughs> <laughs> They'd never get that sort of access that, to do what they did in this movie. Yeah. I guess Drive to Survive is the best we can hope for now, huh? Yeah. And I'm looking forward to season two of that. When does that, that come out? For, that includes Ferrari and McLaren this time. Uh, it's got to um, be soon, right? And Mercedes this, this time. Yeah, yeah oh, it's going to include Mercedes and Ferrari this time. Yeah, because they yeah. they didn't. It was just like what you said with uh, with the, with Frankenheimer. It's like they didn't want any part of it to start with, and they saw how successful it was, and how well done it was, and how it brought new people to the sport. And they had essentially left themselves out on purpose. And so now they're like, uh, we need to be in this, right? Because I know a lot of people, particularly on Twitter, that started watching Formula One this past season after watching Drive to Survive out of curiosity, and. I just had this vision that they all thought that the greatest teams were Red Bull and, you know, McLaren and Renault. And all of a sudden they're going, wow, there's these two teams I didn't even know about that are way better than most of those other teams currently. So, uh, yeah, at least the people will know about Ferrari and Mercedes this time. So so I just looked it up. Uh, it should come out the week before the season starts, so sometime in March. Okay. 
All right. All right. Well, I'm looking forward yeah. to it. And, and it, for those that don't know what we're talking about, it's a show on Netflix where they do a multi, multi-episode, week-by-week uh, kind of reality show, but it really plays up the drama of the drivers and their situations and the competition. And it's a very well-done, well-edited uh, piece of work from Netflix. So Uncensored, too. And Yeah. All right, so that's our verdict on Grand Prix from 1966 with James Garner and company. Uh, if you haven't seen it, go check it out, and uh, hopefully we haven't just spoiled it completely for you. <laughs> hopefully you watched it before you finish this podcast. If you have seen it, let us know what you thought about our comments on it. If there's something that we totally missed, uh, let us know. You can find Alan and me both on Twitter. I'm at Van Allen Plexico. And Alan, how would they find you best? On Twitter, uh, just at Alan J. Porter. And uh, just the website is alanjporter.com. All right. And you can uh, get on there and give us a shout as to what you thought about it, because uh, I'd really like to know what you have to think. Okay. Well, that'll be uh, our first movie review of Open Wheel. We will be back soon to do probably next uh, either Ford versus Ferrari or Rush. We have those coming up. And then we'll be also be doing our season conclusion, season preview for 2020. So, Alan, until we reconvene, I guess the next time you and I talk, we'll probably be to talk about Skyfall, won't it? It will indeed, yes. Yeah, All but right. this was fun. It, it was, was nice to talk about a, a different movie. A lot of fun. And by the way, I, I liked your inadvertent pun at the beginning when you said we needed to get back on track. <laughs> and we did. That's right. All right. All right, so Open Wheel's going to get on out of here. Check us out at www.plexico.net. has all the various shows that we do, and uh, we will see you guys further on down the road. Bye-bye. This has been a White Rocket Entertainment production.